money, power, and high principle. The Western Church was very rich. It had to be. It was responsible for a continental network of parish priests, church buildings, and monastic houses, supported by an international bureaucracy of unparalleled sophistication, and these things do not come cheap. It had to preserve its political independence in a dangerous world, which meant choosing leaders of royal and noble stock. These were men, and some women, the great abbesses, whose dignity and effectiveness in their offices depended on maintaining the high courtly style to which they had been born. Yet this was also an age that actively valued poverty, lauding it as a positive virtue like no Christian society before or since. The ideal late medieval cleric was a friar, who was forbidden even to touch money, and who was supposed not even to own the rough clothes on his back. The contrast between that ideal and the church's corporate wealth was disturbing. Surely all that money must be corrupting. Once, as a rueful proverb had it, golden priests had served from wooden chalices. Now wooden priests serve from golden chalices. Every time the church extracted rents, tithes, or other payments from its flock, it fed a resentment that went beyond ordinary taxpayers' grumbles. And when there were real or perceived financial abuses, the gap between high ideals and sordid reality yawned dangerously wide. Martin Luther was a friar as well as a professor. When a man in his position accused the church of money-grubbing, people were ready to listen. Then there was power. Back in the eleventh century, the popes had wriggled free from political control and established a vigilantly guarded independence. By the fifteenth century, they had quietly dropped some of their more startling claims. In theory, they were lords of Christendom, able to depose kings and demand universal obedience, where they knew not to push their luck. They had never really recovered from the ghastly schism of 1378 to 1417, when Europe was split between first two and then three rival popes. The schism was ended by a great reforming church council, which seemed to promise an era of renewal, a hope that slowly evaporated over the following decades, leaving a residue of bitterness. By 1500, virtually all Western Christians acknowledged the papacy, but they were not proud of it. Eye-popping tales were told about Pope Alexander VI, 1492-1503, Rodrigo Borgia, who in 1501 supposedly held an orgy in the papal apartments for his son, to which he invited fifty chosen prostitutes and select senior clerics. True or not, it was widely believed. Inadequate leadership and financial corruption make a dangerous mix. All the more so in Germany, the vast north-central European territories that fell loosely under the so-called Holy Roman Emperor. The rivalry between popes and emperors was ancient, and as the papal court became dominated almost exclusively by Italians after the schism, it seemed increasingly foreign north of the Alps. National stereotypes came into play. Germans were, in their own minds, bluff, honest, easily duped, but firm in the defence of the right. Italians, by contrast, were scheming, malevolent, effeminate, avaricious, and cowardly. So when a German friar accused Italians of extortion and tyranny, German ears were ready to hear him.
there was also a matter of principle at stake. As well as some memorable popes, the Renaissance gave Western Christendom a slogan, at fontes, to the sources, and urged a return to the ancient, and therefore pure, founts of truth. By 1500, this fashion for antiquity was sweeping into every field of knowledge. Renaissance linguists tried to recover the glories of Cicero. Renaissance generals tried, with dubious success, to remodel their armies as Roman legions. The problem with the ancient world was that it happened a long time ago, and reconstructing it involved guesswork. But late medieval Europeans never doubted that it had been a world of pristine perfection. They measured their own age against that imagined ideal. Inevitably, it fell short. And so the most devastating critiques of the late medieval church came not from the discontented or marginalized, but from within.